Father, we are thankful for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that while we were outcasts and enemies, while we had chosen our sin and our selfishness over you, thank you, Lord, that in grace you reached down to us. Thank you that, Lord, in grace you got the gospel to us. Thank you that in grace, when we heard the gospel, Lord, you opened our hearts to it. You brought us to faith. You granted us repentance. Lord, everything about our standing before you is owed to your grace and kindness toward us. And so, Father, thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to extend grace this morning as we turn our attention to your word. Thank you, God, that you continue to speak authoritatively and powerfully through the words of Scripture. And Father, we pray that you would see fit to do that again this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, go and grab your Bibles with me and open up to the New Testament book of Colossians. If you're visiting with us, our uh, normal pattern as a church is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we do that for a couple reasons. One reason is we, we think it's one of the ways to help safeguard and to make sure that we keep scripture in context. So by studying the Bible um, in order, by going through it in books, it keeps us from just grabbing a verse of scripture and ripping it out of context and making it mean whatever we want it to mean. So that's one reason we do it that way. The other reason we go through books of the Bible is um, I think it gives us a more balanced spiritual diet. So if you were just depending on me preaching whatever kind of struck my fancy that week, then all you would get would be the topics that I like preaching on. You would be limited to the things I enjoy covering. But by going through books of the Bible, we get the full swath of spiritual food that God intends to give to us. And so this morning, we're going to begin a study in the book of Colossians. We'll only get through the introduction of it. But let me, let me take just five or ten minutes and sort of set the stage for you with what Colossians is. This, of course, is one of... 13 letters that you have in your New Testament that were written by the Apostle Paul. Okay, so Paul wrote this letter to a very young church. The, the, this church had been in existence for no more than 10 years. It, it came in existence in the early 50s AD. Paul's writing this letter in the early 60s. So this church has not been there for very long. Um, and if you go on a map today and you try to find the city of Colossae, you won't find it because it doesn't exist anymore. This, this area was very prone to earthquakes. And eventually, not long after Paul wrote this letter, there was a major earthquake that hit this region. Colossae was destroyed and it, it was never rebuilt after that. Now, there was a time when there was a major trade road that ran through this city. And so it was a significant city. But even by Paul's day, that trade road had been diverted so that it ran through Laodicea instead. And so... What that meant is the city of Colossae in Paul's day was slowly shrinking. It was growing less and less important. A lot of commentators, in fact, would say that this Colossae was the least significant city that Paul ever wrote a letter to. Okay, Ephesus was a great city. Rome was a great city. Corinth was a great city. Not so much the city of Colossae. In fact, from what we can read, Paul never actually went to this city. Paul's not the one who planted this church. Paul had never met most of the people that he was writing to. Well, then how is it that the city of Colossae ended up on Paul's radar? Well, you'll remember that when Paul's going on his missionary journeys, there was not a, a cookie-cutter plan that Paul followed. In other words, Paul didn't just go to a city and spend four days 
preaching evangelism rallies in the stadium and then he goes to the next city and the next city. That's not what Paul did. Paul would go and he would preach the gospel and sometime, sometimes he'd right away get run out of town. Other times there'd be a little bit of a positive response, but it'd be mostly resistance. Then there would be times when God would open a door for Paul and Paul would preach and there would be massive results and wide spreading fruit from Paul's ministry. And when that happened, Paul would stay in those cities sometimes for a very long time. He would stay there to try to get churches established. And if that happened in a city that was a prominent city, where Paul thought that from that city it could kind of be a lighthouse in the region and that city could get the gospel to the whole area, Paul might stay in that city for a long time. And that's what he had done in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was just about 100 miles away from Colossae. And Paul had gone to Ephesus and had ended up spending over two years in Ephesus. He had preached the gospel. There had been great results. You'll remember, Ephesus is where the idol makers in the city basically had a strike. They went on protest and marched because they were afraid the gospel work being done through Paul in Ephesus was so great that it might shut down their whole idol making industry. And so God did great things through Paul in Ephesus. In fact, listen to how Paul's ministry in Ephesus is described. This is in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. It says, and this continued. This is Paul's preaching ministry in Ephesus. This continued for two years so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now when you read Asia in your Bible, it's talking about a region that was known as Asia Minor. It's the western part of modern day Turkey. Ephesus was in Asia Minor and Colossae was in Asia Minor. And Acts tells us that from the work Paul did in Ephesus, the gospel, think of it like throwing a stone in a pond, the stone hits and then it ripples out. Well, the work that Paul did in Ephesus was like the stone in the pond. And from his work, the gospel rippled out through all of Asia Minor. Well, a hundred miles inland, Ephesus is a port city, a hundred miles inland from Ephesus is an area that's, that's still called the Lycus River Valley. And there were three main cities there. There's Laodicea, Hierapolis, and then the smallest of those cities was Colossae. And what happened is people from that valley would travel through Ephesus. If you're doing business and you're needing to sail somewhere, Ephesus was the port city you would go to to travel around. Just like today, if you're, if you're trying to travel from Georgia and you catch a flight, just about every flight ends up having to pass through Atlanta. Well, if you're traveling in Paul's day in that region, you're having to pass through Ephesus. And so what happened is, as people would travel and go through Ephesus, many of them were coming into contact with Paul. They were hearing Paul preach the gospel, and there were folks all around Asia as they passed through Ephesus who were hearing the gospel from Paul, and they were coming to believe in Jesus. Their lives were being changed. And there had been some people from the Lycus River Valley who had gone to Ephesus, heard the gospel, and been saved. In fact, we'll, later in our reading this morning, we'll meet one of those men. One of the guys from Colossae who had come to know Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. His name is Epaphras. And Epaphras, when he became a believer, he went back home and shared the gospel with his friends and his family and his neighbors. And through the ministry of Epaphras, lots of people in this area ended up trusting in Jesus. So churches ended up getting planted in Colossae. 
and Hierapolis and Laodicea. The whole Lycus River Valley was impacted by the work through Epaphras that was started by Paul in Ephesus. Okay, so, so that's, that's how the city of the church of Colossae ended up on Paul's radar. Paul knows about this church through his friend Epaphras, who was saved under Paul's ministry and had gone back to this region to plant churches there. But when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, this letter, he was over a thousand miles away. In fact, if your Bible's open to Colossians, look at the very last verse of Colossians. It gives us some helpful insight on what was going on in Paul's life when he wrote it. Look at Colossians chapter 4, the very last verse, verse 18. Colossians 4, verse 18, Paul says, This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you, amen. Now, the fact that Paul says to this church, remember my chains, what does that mean? What was Paul's condition when he wrote this letter? Paul was in chains, meaning Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. And the, the main imprisonment we know from Paul's life was when Paul was in prison in Rome. So Paul, his whole life, had dreamed of going to Rome with the gospel, but he never dreamed he'd end up going to Rome in chains. There was a big issue in Jerusalem. Paul appeals to Caesar. He gets shipped off to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And he ended up spending two years in Rome waiting to stand trial. Two years were 24 hours a day. He is constantly chained to a Roman soldier. And it was during Paul's time as a prisoner in Rome that his friend Epaphras had gone to Rome to visit Paul. And while he was there, Epaphras had told Paul about these churches in the Lycus River Valley. He told Paul about the work going on in the city of Colossae, about the people who had come to believe in Jesus, about the spiritual fruit that was being produced. But Epaphras had also told Paul about something that had him concerned. There was a, a new brand of false teaching that was beginning to seep into this area. And so even though Paul had never met most of these Christians, he writes a letter, he gets this word from Epaphras, and he writes this letter that he sends back to this church. And there's, there's two things he's trying to do in this letter. The main thing he's doing is he is encouraging them in their faith. Paul believes these people are genuine Christians. This is, this is mainly a friendly, warm-hearted letter. Okay, there are other letters like we read, we studied a while back his letter to the Galatians that is strong, it is harsh. Paul is lighting into them because they're embracing false teaching. That's not what's going on in Colossae. Paul's writing this letter to try to fortify these Christians so that they'll have the resources they need so they won't fall for the false teaching that's coming their way. And the main way, this is the theme of Colossians, the main way Paul is trying to build them up so they won't fall for the false teaching is by teaching them who Jesus is. So, so the theme of Colossians, this whole book is about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. So Paul's convinced that if these believers will be rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what we have in Jesus through faith, if they would grasp that, they would be impervious to the false teaching. 
Because the heart of this false teaching is it tried to undermine the sufficiency of Jesus. So these false teachers would say, hey, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus, but if you really want to go on in the spiritual life, that's not enough. And this seems to have been a really unusual brand of false teaching. You can read a hundred commentaries uh, about it. It's called the Colossian heresy, and it's hard to nail down. Because there are several different threads that made up this particular brand of false teaching. On the one hand, there was a thread of uh, Jewish legalism to it. Meaning, these false teachers were saying, if you really want to know intimacy with God, you need to follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws. You need to start keeping the dietary rules. And you need, you need to observe all the different feast days. So there's a thread of Jewish legalism to it. But there was also a thread of early Gnosticism. Do you remember talking about Gnosticism before? Gnosticism was, was this teaching that filled the ancient world. And it did a couple things. One thing it did is it, it kind of drove a wedge between the spiritual world and the physical world. And Gnosticism said anything physical is evil. Anything spiritual is good. And so the Gnostic teachers would say, hey... If you really want to know what spiritual life is like, well, you need us to initiate. That, that word Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so the Gnostics said that they had a deeper form of knowledge. In other words, all, all these Christians in Colossae had was just sort of the introductory base level of Christian faith. And if they, if they wanted to know the deep things of God, well, they needed these false teachers to kind of initiate them, to show them the secret path into real spiritual knowledge. So it was Jewish legalism combined with Gnosticism and then combined with a, a kind of pagan mysticism. So as, you, as we get later into chapter 2, you'll find that these false teachers claimed that they could offer new revelations and visions and dreams and encounters with angels. And so it was all of this different stuff blended together that was coming into this church. But the bottom line was, the bottom line of this false teaching was it said that we need more than Jesus. That the way to real life, the way to real godliness, the right way to real intimacy with God, it requires something else. And so Paul's goal in, the, in this letter is just to drill down into who Jesus is and what we have through faith in him. Okay, that's where this letter's going. Okay, so with that said, I just want to read the introduction with you this morning. If your Bible's open, we're in Colossians chapter 1. Let's just read through the first eight verses. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you 
as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now we're going to walk through this introduction just under two main headings. Here's the first one. Number one, I want you to see Paul's greeting. Paul's greeting. Um, They had a customary way of writing letters in Paul's day, just like we do. So if you're sitting down to write a letter or to type out an email, there's a pattern you follow. What's the pattern? Well, we start with who we're writing to. I might say, Dear Ellie. And then after that, we give a greeting. I hope you're doing well. And then there's the body of the letter. And then what's the very last thing we put in a letter? Who it's from. Sincerely, Jared. And if you think about it, that's not a very practical way of writing a letter. Because if you get a letter and you don't know who it's from, what's the very first thing you're going to do? You're going to look to the bottom so you can see who's writing the letter to you. Even if you get a phone call. If you get a call from a person you've never talked to before and you don't recognize the number, what's the very first thing you want to know? Do you want to have a whole 15-minute conversation and wait to the end for the person to tell you who they are? No, you want to know right away who you're talking to. Well, that's reflected in how they wrote letters in Paul's day. So the very first thing you would do when you were writing a letter is you would put who it's from and who it's to. And that's how Paul starts. So right away we're told this letter is written by Paul. And I'm not going to take the time to give you a full biography on Paul, but you know his story, right? Paul was a a brilliant man. He was ethnically Jewish, but he had been raised outside of Israel. He was a Roman citizen, which was a high prize in that day. Paul had a brilliant mind. He had been trained by the best Jewish rabbis of his day. And Paul found such pride in his ethnic heritage and in his knowledge and in his, in his religious commitment. Because you know, Paul wasn't just a Jew, Paul was a Pharisee. That means within the Jewish religion, Paul was part of the group that was recognized as being the most devoted, as being the most conservative. He was a religious conservative. And Paul hated Christianity because he thought Christianity was a threat to his Jewish faith. Until everything changed for Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Right When, when Paul interacted with Christ, Jesus confronts, Jesus, uh, Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul's whole life, his whole worldview got turned on its head. And in an instant, Paul went from trying his best to end Christianity to doing everything in his power to spread Christianity. Okay, so Paul has been radically saved by the Lord. But not only had Jesus saved Paul, what had Jesus appointed Paul to be? What does he say in verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Jesus had saved Paul, and then he had made him an apostle. Apostle is a specific God-appointed office that existed in the early church. Just to be clear... Disciple and apostle is not the same thing, even though we tend to use those words interchangeably. But disciple just means learner, follower. Every Christian is a disciple. 
we're all followers of Jesus. But from his big number of disciples, Jesus selected 12 men to be apostles. Apostles were men who were sent out to represent Jesus. They were men who carried the authority of Jesus. They're men who received direct revelation from God. We're told, in fact, in 1 Timothy, that the apostles, along with the prophets, laid the foundation of truth that the church is built upon. Okay, so Paul is an apostle, and he says that at the beginning of the letter just to establish his authority. So Paul's not writing Colossians as an opinion piece. This isn't an editorial. He's writing this with the full authority of Jesus behind him, which means any command that's given in Colossians is given as an authoritative command from the Lord Jesus. Any teaching that's given in Colossians is given with the authoritative power of Jesus behind it. And why was Paul an apostle? Was Paul an apostle because he graduated from the right seminary? Now, how does he identify himself? He says in verse 1, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul didn't sign up to become an apostle. He didn't volunteer for this. He was appointed to this role by the Lord Jesus. He's an apostle, Paul says, by the will of God. And I would just add, and in that, Paul ends up spending the rest of his life serving the Lord. He ends up spending the rest of his life doing everything in his power to spread the gospel and doing everything in his power to build the church. I mean, this is largely what Paul is interested in. Paul, he is interested in building up the people of God, proclaiming the gospel so that God's sheep are called in and then strengthening the believers. That's what Paul spends his life doing. So that even when Paul was in chains, what does Paul keep doing? He keeps writing letters so that he can keep building up the people of God. So that even when Paul was in prison, he is still doing everything he can to serve the Lord and invest in God's people. In fact, four of the letters that we have from Paul in the New Testament were written while he was in prison. Think about that. Four of the letters that here we are 2,000 years later still profiting from, four of those letters were written while Paul was in chains. Steve Lawson made, I think, the very helpful point that this is still the way that God often works. And the point was that, that some of the most fruitful times that you and I as Christians will have in life and will have in ministry will come during seasons of affliction. Okay, here Paul is, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, and he writes some of these letters that we still profit from. So remember that in your life. When you're going through a season where you feel, you feel pressed down by trials, you feel broken down by grief, you feel like you're in the pressure cooker in your family or you're in the pressure cooker at work, if you'll continue to be faithful to the Lord during those times, you just might find that some of the most sweet, lasting fruit of your whole ministry will come in those seasons. It's like, it's like having a tube of toothpaste that you got to squeeze it, you got to put pressure on it to get out the good stuff that you need. Well, that's somehow the, sometimes the way that God works in our lives. That it's in those seasons of affliction when pressure is put on from the outside. If you will continue to walk with the Lord, if you'll make sure you don't just shut down and 
start throwing a pity party for yourself if you will walk with the Lord and continue to invest in people and continue to serve on Christ's sake, some of the sweetest fruit from your life might come in those seasons. It did for Paul. Okay, so here Paul is writing, and he adds who's with him when he writes this. He says in verse 1 that he's also writing this with Timothy, our brother. You know the story of Timothy. He's Paul's protege. He comes to faith through Paul's ministry and travels with Paul extensively. And then here's who Paul's writing to, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So how does Paul identify the Christians here? He calls them saints and faithful brethren. Now, we, we tend to most often use the word Christian. You know, Paul never actually refers to believers as that. Paul never uses the word Christian. That word doesn't appear until a place in Acts. Paul tended to use the word saint or the elect or brothers and sisters. That's how Paul refers to followers of Jesus. What is a saint? If you're from a Roman Catholic background, what is a saint? Well, a saint is sort of the special class of Christians. You, you die, and then your life has to be turned in for nomination, and then you have to be examined, and it has to be proven that you did miracles, and then you can be classified as a saint. But that's not how the word saint works in the Bible. Every follower of Jesus is identified as a saint. The word saint means holy one, or one who is set apart. Okay, that's, that's an identifier for every follower of Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, you have been declared holy by God through Christ. And if your faith is in Jesus, you have been set apart as belonging to God. That's how he identifies these Christians. Saints, and Paul calls them faithful brethren. What is, what is brethren? That's family language. We might use the phrase brothers and sisters. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you, you've been made holy by God and set apart for God. You're a saint. And if you're a Christian, it also means you have been made part of a new family. If your faith is in Jesus, we all have God as our Father. And if your faith is in Jesus, you have a new number of brothers and sisters. You've been brought now into the family of God. You have a new spiritual family. And what is it that makes us holy? And what is it that brings us into this family? Don't miss the phrase that Paul uses. We're saints and brethren in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases. If you just want to boil down the basics of what it means to be a Christian, here it is. Being a Christian means being joined to Jesus by faith. That's being a Christian. It means through faith, you are now plugged into Jesus. In the, in the catacombs, the tunnels underneath the city of Rome, where millions of people were buried over the years, and interestingly enough, where for years, Christians would meet in the tunnels underneath Rome in secret to worship, so the Roman authorities didn't know they were worshiping. But some of those grave markers, some of the tombs in the catacombs, don't have any name on them. We're not told who's buried there. The only thing that's written on the tombstone is the phrase, in Christos. In other words, the only thing that's written about this person who's buried there is they died in Christ. It's like all that matters about this person is not their name, it's not what their job was. All, that's mattered, all that matters about this person is they, by faith, 
were connected to Jesus. That's what salvation is. Salvation means you now by faith, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Jesus stands for you as your representative. You're banking everything on Christ and what he's done for you. So they're saints and they're brethren because of their connection to Jesus. But notice that Paul also says they are in Colossae. Now get the, get the parallel that, that he's given. So on the one hand, they're in Christ. But on the other hand, they're in Colossae. So which one is it? Are they in Colossae or are they in Christ? And the answer is both. Spir their, their spiritual location was in Christ. Their physical location was in Colossae. They had a city they lived in. They had a place that they worked. They had homes that they built. They had businesses that they grew. They had gardens that they planted. They had neighbors and friends and co-workers. They shopped and bought groceries. They did all of those things in the city of Colossae. But listen, how they lived in Colossae had been radically changed because they were now also in Christ. And the fact that they were in Christ changed everything about how they lived in Colossae. This is where you and I stand as Christians. You might be in Waycross, or in Blackshear, or in Alma, or in Hoboken, or in Patterson, or in Otter Creek, or in wherever. You might live wherever, but if you are a Christian, you are more significantly in Christ. And the fact that you are in Christ changes everything about how you live in that community. It changes, it changes the kind of friend you are. And it changes how you behave at work. And it changes how you care for your community. So you are in fill in the blank. But the most significant thing about you is you are in Christ. Okay, so Paul says, he's writing to these saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are living in Colossae. And then he gives his typical greeting. This is how Paul opens so many of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they now had God as their Father and because they were now connected to the Lord Jesus, grace and peace were theirs. Maybe a helpful way to think about it would be, it's as if grace and peace are God the Father's gifts to all of his children. If you have God as your Father, then there is an abundance of grace that is toward you and available for you. And if you have God as your Father, then peace is God's gift to you through His Son. Grace and peace. That's Paul's greeting. Secondly, I want to see Paul's gratitude. Look at how he opens verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. The idea is that every time Paul prays for this church, he can't help but thank God for this church. So, so Paul's attitude toward this church is marked by thankfulness. And when Paul says, I give thanks, he doesn't mean that he thanked them. He means that he thanked God for them. Uh, it's what we've said several times in our service already today. This is really one of the hallmarks of Christianity. Christians are grateful people. 
Well, we have hearts that should be overflowing with gratitude toward God. We have hearts that are so thankful because we know what it is to have our sin debt lifted. We know what it is to be forgiven. We recognize how weekly and daily God's meeting our needs and we see clearly God's hand of provision and we know what it is to be brought into a new family. We're thankful. And Paul here gives us a couple reasons he was thankful. I'm going to give you three of them. Number one, Paul is thankful for the power of the gospel. Thankful for the power of the gospel. Now, what he does in verses 4 and 5 is he explains what he gave thanks to God about them for. So as he thought about this church and prayed for this church, here's what he saw that he was thankful for. Verses 4 and 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So as Paul thought about this church, one of the things he was thankful for is it was obvious they had been changed by the gospel. And what I mean by that is as Paul listened to Epaphras' report on this church, it was clear to Paul these people had genuinely been converted. Well, what made him think they had been converted? Well, there are three things that Paul mentioned in those two verses. Did you notice them? It's a triad that Paul loves grouping together. Faith, and then what are the other two? It's faith, love, and hope. Paul regularly partners those three things together to the point that faith, hope, and love really become almost shorthand for what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, Christians have faith, hope, and love. And the fact that Paul says, I thank God that there's evidence of faith, hope, and love, what does that mean? Well, it means that their faith, hope, and love weren't private. In other words, it's not just that they felt love on the inside and they had a personal faith in Jesus. It means they had a reputation for faith, hope, and love. So Paul is convinced that they've been converted because there is faith, hope, and love being demonstrated in their lives. So let's talk about what that means and looks like. So first, Paul said that he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the mark of real Christianity is not faith in faith. The mark of real Christianity is not faith in the man upstairs. It's not faith in a higher power. The mark of Christianity is faith in Christ Jesus. That means you have put your trust in Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the promised King and Savior of the Old Testament. You trust in that Jesus. And let me just talk about that word trust for a minute. Some of you might remember several years back, we read a biography about the missionary John G. Patton. Any of y'all remember Patton? He was a missionary who went and brought the gospel to um, some very difficult islands in the South Pacific. Islands, in fact, that had known cannibalistic tribes who lived there. And Patton went there with the gospel. It was a very difficult ministry, but God worked and people came to know Christ. And one of the things he worked on while he was there is he tried to translate the Bible into their native language. 
And on one occasion, Patton was trying to translate the Gospel of John into their language. And what he kept running into is the Gospel of John is filled with the word believe. We're called to trust in Jesus in John's Gospel, but there was no word in their language for trust. I mean, they're, they're cannibalistic tribes. They didn't trust anybody. So there was no word he could find that was equivalent to trust. And so finally one day, he, he called one of the natives who was helping him. He called him into his hut. And John Patton went over to his desk, and he sat down in his chair at his desk, and he picked his feet up off the ground so that all of his weight was on the chair. And Patton said to the native, he said, what am I doing? He was looking for the word in their language that would describe it. And the native gave him their word that meant to lean all of your weight on something. And Patton knew that, that he had found the word that he was looking for because that's what trust is. Trust means you put all of your weight down on Jesus. It's not that I'm putting 80% down and trusting in Him and I'm trusting the other 20% in my ability to reform my own life. No, faith in Christ means you are banking everything. Your life, your salvation, your righteousness, your eternity, everything on Him. You realize your righteousness will never measure up. So you're trusting in Jesus' righteousness for you. You, you realize that you can never do enough to scrub clean your debt of sins against God. So you're trusting that through Jesus' work at the cross, that record is wiped clean. And so you're banking everything on Jesus. Well, there was evidence of that in these believers. They were trusting in Christ. And then what's the second thing that Paul saw evidence of? Faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. Now I want you to get this. Genuine faith in Jesus is always married together with a genuine love for the people of Jesus. Did you hear that? Genuine faith in Jesus. Read 1 John sometimes if you have questions about this. Genuine faith in Jesus is always married together with genuine practical love for other followers of Jesus. And what I mean by that is people who are truly following Jesus want to spend time with and invest in and care for and serve other followers of Jesus. This is one of the reasons why church life is not just an important part of our faith. Listen carefully now. But church life is also an important test of our faith. Because genuine followers of Jesus will practically love other followers of Jesus. This is why we should be genuinely concerned for people who profess faith in Jesus but show no interest in church life. It's not just that you won't be all you can be as a Christian if you're not involved with other Christians. That's not what the Bible would say. It's that if you have no interest in serving, being around, caring for other Christians, the New Testament would say your claims of faith are actually highly suspect. So if you have family or friends who profess faith in Jesus, but show no practical interest in, investment in, care for other followers of Jesus, you should be genuinely concerned for their souls. It's why, it's why we don't just brush it aside if we have people who are members of our church who never attend here. 
and aren't involved in a Christian community anywhere. It's because to claim faith in Christ but to have no accompanying love for the people of God strips the meaning and the picture that the Bible gives out of what real faith looks like. So it's not just that disconnecting yourself habitually from other Christians keeps you from growing in the faith. It's that disconnecting, living habitually disconnected from the people of God where there's no investment in, no care for, no time with, no service toward. It's not just that 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 keeps you from growing in the faith if there's no connection. It's that that is very possibly the sign that your claims to faith are spurious. That they're not genuine. Paul thanks God for the work he sees here because he sees a genuine faith in Christ that is married to a genuine love for the people of Christ. Do do you see how this transforms how we understand what it means to be part of a church family? Do you see how this transforms how we respond to people who might be part of our church family who never attend church? We don't just brush that aside as, well, they just don't come to church anymore, but they're followers of Christ. We take it seriously because we know that a lack of interest in and investment in the people of God might very well be the sign that their faith isn't real to start with. So we dare not act like it's no big deal. We shouldn't be burdened and we must pursue. So Paul is confident that a work of God is going on in this church, not just because they signed a statement of faith, but because he sees not only faith, he sees it married together to a genuine love for the people of God. And then here's the third thing. The third thing that Paul mentions is hope. But notice how he words it with hope. He talks about their faith and their love, which they had because... Of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Get the word because. What does because tell us? It tells us that their faith and love was a result of their hope. In other words, it's their hope that caused love and faith to spring up. Well, what what exactly does hope mean? If you've been here very long, you know that the word hope in the Bible does not just mean something that we wish for. Like, I hope it cools off next week. Okay, that's wishful thinking, right? But the word hope in the Bible means something that we have confident assurance in, in the future. It is a steadfast assurance that is future focused. So as Christians, we have a steadfast confidence as we look toward the future because God has told us what the future holds. We know we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We know that we're going to get eternity with God. We know that one day we're going to have new sin-free bodies and we're going to live in a new sin-free world. We have this grand inheritance waiting and God has already given us the down payment of that inheritance. He's already put His Spirit inside of us. And so we have a confident assurance as we look toward the future. And because of that hope, Paul says we have a rock-solid faith and we have real sacrificial love. Now, do do you see how faith and love spring out of hope? The the way J.I. Packer describes it, he describes it, and I hope I can, I can explain this well. He describes it as the forward, tilted life. 
I like that description. The forward tilted life. And his point is that as Christians, we look toward the future with hope. We know what God's promised. The promises are great. And it's like as we look toward the future, we lean forward. We live the forward tilted life. Well, what happens when you lean forward? I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you're walking, what do you do before you take a step? Well, your body works is you lean forward. You shift your center of gravity, you lean forward, and that's how you start walking and running because leaning is what gives you momentum to start moving forward. Well, the point here is that we live the forward tilted life. We are looking toward what God has promised in the future, and that keeps us leaning forward. It gives us momentum. Because we know what God's promised, so we keep that momentum gives us the faith to trust in Jesus now no matter what. And that forward tilted life, it gives us momentum to keep sacrificially loving other people even when it's costly. So it's our hope, our confidence in what God's promised in the future that keep our faith strong and keep our love sacrificial. Let me give you just one example of this. Listen to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now just pause for a minute. What would make Moses do that? He was being raised in the royal palace. Why would he give that up and spend his whole life serving a bunch of grumbling, complaining people in the wilderness. Well, here's the answer. Here's why he did that. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Do you see what he's saying? Is Moses lived the forward-tilted life. He believed that what God had for his people was greater than anything that Pharaoh could ever offer. And so because of that, Moses walked in faith and he sacrificed for the people of God. Okay, that's faith, hope, and love. Paul saw faith, hope, and love in these people's lives. And that's what gave him confidence that God had really brought them to life. That they had really been converted. Here's the second thing. Secondly, Paul is thankful for the progress of the gospel. According to verse 5, where had they learned about the hope we have in Christ? Paul says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Where is it that we learn about the hope we have? Well, we learn about it in the gospel. The gospel is the, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the gospel holds out in front of us this great hope of forgiveness and ongoing grace and eternity with God. And what does Paul call the gospel there? He calls the gospel the word of the truth. What, what is the gospel? Is the gospel, uh, is it a fairy tale? Is this story about Jesus a myth? Is it a legend? No, Paul says the gospel is the word of the truth. There's not your truth and my truth. This is the truth. And what does he say about the gospel in verse 6? He says, which, the gospel he's talking about, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. 
as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And Paul's point is the same gospel that was transforming their lives in Colossae, it was transforming lives all over the Gentile world. Now just think about how staggering this is. Because you have Jesus who basically lives his whole life within about a hundred mile radius. He's in Jerusalem, in Israel, which was this little tucked away corner of the Roman Empire. Nobody thought a second about what was going on in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus lived. That's where Jesus died. When he died, that's where all of his followers were located. And yet here we are in Colossians just three decades later. And that message about Jesus is spreading everywhere in the Roman Empire. Just about every area in the Gentile world is hearing this news about Jesus and it was the same gospel. It's not that there was a gospel in Jerusalem and another gospel in Rome and another gospel in Colossae. It was the same gospel going everywhere and everywhere the gospel went, what were the results? Well, Paul says that it was producing fruit. What's the fruit? Well, if, if you have heard the gospel and you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you're the fruit of the gospel. And, and the gospel produces that same sort of fruit everywhere it goes. I can take you to a, a little village in the Gambia where there's a little group of Christians meeting in the courtyard of a house underneath the shade tree, maybe eight or ten of them, mostly women with babies strapped on their backs who heard the gospel and believed. That's the fruit of the gospel. When we were doing work in Nigeria, we would leave from Joss there toward northern Nigeria and we would travel in these little Toyota Hilux trucks almost four hours down dirt roads that you could hardly get down in these trucks out in the middle of nowhere where it's largely Muslim territory and in the middle of nowhere in all these little villages we would find little clusters of people who had heard the gospel and believed. That's, that's the fruit Paul's talking about. Everywhere this gospel message goes it's producing fruit because it's powerful. So Paul's thanking God for the power of the gospel. And then here's the last thing. He's thankful for the people who present the gospel. Look at how he says it in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now what's happening here is Paul's getting personal. These people had heard the gospel from a particular person. This man named Epaphras. And this is the way it works. God's plan is not that the gospel spread through angels. God's, God's plan is that the gospel spread through people. And so it was, he says that Epaphras was a faithful minister. Why do you think he's emphasizing that? You remember what I said earlier about these false teachers? These false teachers had come on the scene saying, what you got isn't the whole story. What you've heard about Jesus is just the beginning of it. You haven't been given the full picture. And so Paul is reminding these people that the message they had gotten from Epaphras was a faithful message. That Epaphras was a trustworthy witness. And it was through his ministry that these people had come to know Christ. Their lives had been changed. Just notice, I'm going to say this and then we'll be done. I want you to notice the balance that Paul's given. So he starts this greeting in verse 3 by making clear that every good fruit he saw in their lives, he was thanking Jesus for. 
Because Jesus is responsible for it. So when you see faith, hope, and love, Jesus gets all the credit. You didn't just choose to believe on your own. God in grace ignites faith. And God sinks down roots of hope. And God is the one who awakens Christian love. All of that's the Son of God at work. And so Paul thanked God for that in them, but that wasn't all Paul did. You notice how in verses 7 and 8, Paul also thanks God for the people he used to do this work in their lives. And that's an appropriate thing for, or appropriate way for us to address or approach church life and our own individual lives. Listen, as you see around you in church life or in your family, as you see evidence of God's grace, as you see people around you hear the gospel, when you see worldviews turned around and lives transformed and people come to know Christ, primarily we thank God for that. That is God at work. But we also thank God for the people he uses to do that. We thank God for the people who share the gospel with us. And we thank God for the people who disciple us. And the people who are praying for us. And the people who invest in us. And the people who correct us. And the people who care for us. We thank God for the people that he uses. That's what Paul's doing here. So here's what Paul thanks God for. He thanks God for the power of the gospel. As we see fruit in our lives and around us, thank God that the message of Christ crucified is powerful. God was then and is still transforming people's lives through this one same message about Jesus who died and rose again to change sinners. Paul's thankful for the progress of the gospel. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Paul sees evidence of that here. And then Paul's thanking God for the people he was using to spread the gospel. And we thank God where we see that in our lives too. So let's get our hearts ready to come to the Lord's table and celebrate communion. I mentioned earlier that one of the titles for communion is the Eucharist, meaning it's Thanksgiving. We come to the Lord's table, we partake of the bread and the juice as a reminder that God in grace has won our forgiveness in Jesus, and we come to express thankfulness. So take a few minutes just to turn your eyes toward Christ. Thank Him for the power of the gospel. If you see gospel fruit in your life and around you, if you see genuine faith and genuine love and hope that is that forward-tilted life, thank God for His grace that's producing that. Thank God for the people around you. And take this as a time to confess sin in your life and look to Christ where sins were paid for. So.